I'm not pulling out of my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for the Drive to Work Coronavirus Edition. So I've been bringing really fun interviews, and I have another fun one. It is Chris Bakula. Hi. <laughs> okay, so Chris, I'm going to start with the question I've been asking everybody, which is okay. how did you start playing Magic? Uh, I started playing Magic when I uh, went home for summer vacation after my freshman year of college. And one of my friends came home from, one of my high school friends came home from like a weekend LARP, I think. And people at that event had introduced him to magic. So he came home with like, you know, a handful of revised cards that someone had given him and said, this game is pretty cool. People taught me how to play. We should buy some cards and play. So, you know, me and seven or eight of my high school friends that summer started playing magic with revised. Okay. So this is like 94. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So how, how do you go from that to becoming a pro tour player? How, how did that transition happen? Oh, wow. Uh, so that first summer, obviously like, uh, you know, learning magic, I don't know how, I don't really, it's really hard to understand what it's like to learn to play magic now um, because there's just so many resources and, and so many uh, ways to just learn about the game. And back then, obviously, there wasn't. So think, things took a while. Uh, but I think, I think I won a tournament at the end of that first summer at like a local store or something. Um and then when I got back to Cornell, like a small, obviously a tiny local store tournament in 1984, pre-Pro Tour, and this is just <laughs> then. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, I could go on more into how I feel like I, like what, how I developed into like getting good at magic, if you want to talk about that, or if you want to talk about like, you know, the, the, I went back to Cornell, and then instead of going to like, the role-playing section of Cornell has a Friday night uh, gaming club. Um, that I don't know how long that had been going on before I got to Cornell. There's always been a Friday night gaming club there, as, as far as I know, um, probably going back to the early 80s, um, at least. And, uh, you know, when I got back from that first summer vacation, I started going to, like, the magic room instead of the, like, role-playing room. And that's when I learned, really started to learn about everything. Like, at, at the end of that first summer... Um, my friends and I still had not really figured out the difference between like alpha and beta and revised. We were still kind of confused as to like, um, why some cards are rare and, and why we never got moxes and packs. <laughs> and, uh, I had to learn all that when I got back to Cornell from like these people who had these like binders full of like, you know, all these old cards that I'd never seen. Um, you know, when I, when I think about those days, I really what what is so different about Magic now than Magic then is that rares are just kind of good now. Mm -hmm. They're either complicated or good. <laughs> okay. But back then, I, I was actually frequently confused because I would fix something, but because a card was like a rare, mm -hmm. but it seemed terrible to me, I would think I must be bad. 
<laughs> I must be bad at the game because this card's rare, so it must be usable. So I must not really get it. But in fact, I was just often right. I just was kind of unwilling to accept the idea that I had was like smarter than the game, if that makes sense. And then sure. there were like cards that were kind of expensive that also confused me. Like, I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you remember. Um, it was like hard to get like killer bees. And I, and I saw that card. I was like, why would anyone want this card? I don't understand. But it's like yeah. hard to get. People were like really trading for it. Um, so it took a while uh, to really understand the whole ecosystem. Um, but then when tournaments started to get more organized, and I guess they rolled out, did they roll out Type 2 just before the first Pro Tour? I, type I 2 was the summer, I think, before the Pro Tour. Uh, right. Pro Tour started in, in early 96, and summer of 95, I believe, was the introduction of, uh, they called it Type 2 at the time, but standard. <laughs> right. So when, so when Type 2 came out, standard, and there was, there was Type 1, and Type 1.5 came in there somewhere, which is like Legacy. Level 5 happened later, but yeah. Extend, yeah. It became extended, I think. Right, right. Um, so that's when it, it became more competitive, I, I think, is when we started to get like more serious about tournaments and such. And then, of course, Pro Tour 1 was literally just a friend of mine called and registered us. So then we were all just in the Pro Tour because one of us found out about it and, and made a phone call. Yeah, yeah. So that for uh, people that don't know, PT1, uh, we, we, there was a small list of people we invited. Uh, but other than that small people list of people invited, you had a call on the phone to get in. That's how you got into PT1. Yeah, so, and uh, so what was PT one yes. like? What was PT one like? Yeah, uh, PT one was uh, so the coolest moment of, of Pro Tour one. The, the one thing I remember, the thing that really hooked me on competitive Magic. So it was at the Puck Building in New York, which is now an REI, <laughs> and uh, and there was like a big, like sort of like. Uh, spectator room outside the tournament room and uh there was a big screen where you could like watch the feature match and of course that was all very new yeah um and i just very distinctly remember watching dave humphreys use his sylvan library um on the big screen in his feature match mm -hmm. and i don't know it was just so cool watching dave humphreys play he was just like had sylvan library and sinbad in his back and then somehow he still just got totally ruined because his opponent cast Autumn Willow before he cast his Autumn Willow, so he couldn't cast it because of the old legend rule. And uh, I don't know. There was something that seemed so... So he was playing Dennis Bentley, by the way. Oh, is that how he was playing? Yeah. I did not realize that. So there was something so like intellectually just cool about watching Dave use his Sylvan Library on the big screen. Yeah. That just really, really struck me as... As just what I wanted to do. I wanted to like be involved in this like weird intellectual battle on that could potentially be on the big screen from the company. And uh, and yeah, I, I really did get hooked. Um, I mean, besides that, obviously by modern standards, the tournament had a lot of problems. You know, the, the judges were extremely inexperienced. Um, it was the first pro tour. Huh? It was the first pro tour. I, I know, I know. I'm just saying, you know. Yeah. Right. Uh, but by my they, they had judged every pro tour that existed up to that point. <laughs> yes. Uh, by modern standards, yes, we would we would not be satisfied with the uh, level of 
how much sloppiness was allowed for both the players and the judges. But, uh, but it was a cool event for sure in that regard, no question. So let's talk a little bit about early magic, because one of the things that I like doing is using this as a chance to talk a little bit of history. And you and I go way back to, to early, early magic history. Um, what, 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 what was the early, the early Pro Tour like? I mean, I, I think that people th- think of, you know, modern sort of Pro Tour, and they don't realize that, yeah, it was a different time. Uh, sure. I mean, the big, one big difference is how young everyone was for sure um you know i was 21 um for pro tour one okay and i remember being thought of as like old (laughs) um and there were a few people older uh and even like a very tiny handful of people who were over 30 um but it was really much younger than if you go to like a competitive you go to a pro tour now or mythic championship um or even to look at the top tables at you know well i guess i don't i want to talk about grand prix but i don't even know if they're, they're this, well i mean we're in know, a pandemic so, normally normally people gather and play magic right. this is, this is a weird time grand two years ago and look at the top tables at the end you know the average age is definitely over 25 um and that just obviously wasn't the case um I think that one that was one because magic was so new. So there just wasn't a group of people who've been playing since they were 12, obviously, because yeah. it just wasn't a thing. Um, but also because I, you know, because the game got so much bigger and the prizes got bigger, it just, you know, attracted a more um, uh, an older crowd, I guess, uh, a wider, wider crowd. Um, so yeah, people were definitely a lot younger. And that, of course, um, had both positives and negatives. Uh, you know, I think the young, the age, you know, obviously my, my, I have a very big reputation for fighting against cheating in early magic. Um, and, uh, and I do think that the age of the people involved in competitive magic did play a very large part in how much cheating there was in magic back then. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just that the judges weren't as good at looking for it or, or that um, or that somehow the people running the tournaments were more permissive. Um, um, I mean, those, those things were true to some extent, but uh, it's just that it's just people who are young make bad decisions sometimes, and I think that really contributed to a lot of that. So that, that was a big part of it, just how young everyone was. Yeah, you, you um, always had this quality about you that you, you felt like everybody could do better. <laughs> like, you know, like people weren't doing... Like, it could be better than it is. You, come on, people, we could be better. That, that yeah. seemed a, a, a through line. Yeah, but it's funny, because even even when... So every once in a while, someone will show me, like, a Usenet post from me from, like, 1997. Yeah. And I'm very obviously young in these, because I'm I'm saying the same... The things I'm saying have the same ideas I might use now. Yeah. I say them very differently. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, it was also, uh, you know, magic was different back then because there wasn't this, uh, you know, there wasn't nearly as much sort of hive mind about what was good and what was bad. So people could take, um, you know, today, uh, 
there are players who sort of uh, get credit for kind of maybe doing things a little bit differently. Um, like Sam Black is a recent, you know, very successful player who I think has a reputation for, you know, playing different decks than other people um, might. Um, but back then, uh, almost everybody in some sense kind of did their own thing. It wasn't nearly as much, uh, you know, homogenous sort of uh, approach to the game where now today is like, you know, most of the players just kind of like play the best deck. And then there's these kind of like, you know, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word outcast. Um, <laughs> I don't know, right. They're not outcasts. They're just, uh, they're just different who, who kind of do their own thing more, maybe more often than they should. Sometimes they're detriment, sometimes not. Uh, but back then, um, I feel like everyone sort of did their own thing more. Um, it was just harder to know. I mean, of course, the structure of how the tournaments work, um, and what I mean by that uh, is different because the timing is different. It used to be there was no real way to test for a pro tour except with your friends. There wasn't like a week of magic online before the pro tour or even something like that, where you could really play a lot. Um, And because everyone was younger and the prizes were smaller, um, but mostly I would say because everyone was younger, so people just didn't have as much money. People weren't flying and, and living together for two weeks before a tournament either. So everything was just much less explored and um, uh, you were more likely to show up at a tournament and not really know how good your deck was or uh, be more surprised by what you saw. Um, You know, obviously today people still show up at tournaments with bad decks, um, but I feel like probably the last five years especially, um, I feel like the Pro Tour decks have become a little bit, quite a bit more predictable. Um, where so, back then, you would often show up and and someone would would have a deck that uh, really blew you away. You're like, we just didn't even know this was a deck. Um, so I, I'm going to segue into I'm going to segue into into a, a tournament that uh, talk about not knowing what was coming. I want I want to jump to PT Atlanta. Okay. Um, so for those, let me set the stage. You you know PT Atlanta, but let me set the stage for the audience. So. PT Atlanta was the Pro Tour where we introduced the players to a for, uh, set that wasn't out yet. It was Mirage. And it was a pre-release tournament Pro Tour. Like, you opened up the packs for the very first time. You've never seen anything in the... Like, you're seeing the cards for the very first time, and now you're playing a Pro Tour. So what 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 was that like? So I, I, one thing I want to say about this. So yes, you're playing a pre-release Pro Tour, which is obviously pretty nuts. Um, especially because it's early in the days of magic where, you know, wizards had not had, you know, they just, they hadn't really gone through this, like what they have, this modern idea of like building sets for limited didn't exist. So, um, well, Mirage was the first set we built for limited. Right. Yeah. So, so (laughs) the other other thing was, and, and this is related to that is that I think a large number of the people in that tournament, had never played in a sealed deck tournament before. Like it wasn't just that it was a pre-release. A lot of people just didn't play limited. Yeah. Um, people just played, you know, whatever their, well, 
I guess, type one or whatever we were calling it when you could just play with all your cards. Yeah. Um, and type two. So even sealed deck was was pretty new to a lot of people. You know, obviously some people have played the uh, Ice Age pre-release. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess, was there a pre-release for... Uh, Alliances had a pre-release that, that was held in like a couple cities. Okay. Including so, including in LA at the boat because it was it, it coincided with uh, a PT on the boat. Right. So there wasn't widespread um, seal deck experience either. People hadn't weren't used to just going to the pre-release every three months and building seal decks. Yeah. So it was very challenging, and I, I would say that I, I would it would be incredible to be able to go back and look at those decks because the deck building mistakes. I mean, I, I made top eight, um, and I built my deck terribly. Um, but my deck is just very good, so I could sort of... I just had bad mana, essentially. Like, if, yeah. I, if I you know, if I drew my mana, my deck was going to be very good. I, I didn't need to build it the way I built it, though. It was just a terrible decision. But, yeah. but I mean, people made... I mean, I just remember D- Dave Price just made terrible decisions. <laughs> Brian Weissman, <laughs> horrific. Um, I mean, I just remember very... People were considered to be very good Magic players who were already, like, considered to be, like... Um, top tier pros were just totally just flummoxed by this because new cards, new new approach to the game, like there were just a lot of a lot of a lot of mistakes in deck building. Was that your first top eight? Uh yeah, because Dallas was later. Dallas was the next Dallas is later, right. Yeah, yes. Dallas was the next okay. event. Okay. Um so that's your first top eight. Um and then the very next the very next Pro Tour, right? Dallas was your next top eight, right? Yes. Back to back top eights. That's right. So, because um, I remember it's funny the, the uh, when you first came on the scene, you were well known for being kind of an entertainer, you know that you could you could spin a yarn and, and stuff. But uh, I think back to back top eights finally said, "Oh, hey, Chris is a player now." You know, this is uh, what, what was that like? Sort of finally making top eights and. Uh, I don't think it felt quite like that, just because. Um, it's because you know they're only I you know, I I made my second top eight at the fifth pro tour. Yeah. Right? So it's not like I I was some. I mean, there just only been five pro tours. Sure, sure, sure. And and the first one, I we obviously just kind of like showed up and didn't really realize what we're getting ourselves into. And you know they didn't have as many rounds back then, so they felt a little more random. Yeah. Um, and so, so it didn't feel that way to me. It definitely didn't feel like, oh, I finally made it because like, I, I, maybe it's just sort of like the, you know, trader gambler in me who wants to talk about small sample size or whatever, yeah. but it just, it, it didn't feel like anything had, was, had already been determined. I mean, I, I knew I wasn't, I probably already knew that I was not as good as John Finkel at this point. Um, but who is as good as John Finkel? Right, exactly. Yeah, it, was clear very, it was very clear very early that we weren't as good as him. Um, and we knew that we were playing catch-up somewhat with the people who had just been kind of playing Magic 50% longer. I mean, we compet- playing Magic and thinking about it like competitively like quite a bit longer than us. So um, there just weren't that many years back then. So if someone had been playing three years and you'd be playing two, it felt like a lot yeah um but i don't i don't think it felt i mean it felt good to do well but i was used to just doing well at local tournaments and and doing well at at, at 
you know, the tournaments that, um, that like neutral ground ran or pre, pre neutral ground gray matter tournaments or they're called or whatever. Um, so I was used to doing well in tournaments and, and, uh, I think the pro tour was so new that I, I didn't feel like I had been stumbling on the pro tour. I mean, I got sure. top, I did well at, you know, I got top 32 at pro tour one and three, I think. Okay. It was just, uh, so yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously it was great to do well, but, uh, I don't, I don't think it hit me. The top eight didn't have the mystique it has now. Okay. So let, let's flash forward about a year. So it is uh, PT Tempest. Um, and I tag you to do commentary for the first time. Do, do you remember this? Just for the top eight, right? Uh, I, I think it was, well, I mean, we only did commentary for the top eight in those days. Right, right, right. Um, okay. And uh, Dave Price, uh, this, this, so a good friend of yours would go in to win the tournament. Um, That's right. Uh, and anyway, I one of the things I had done back in the day was I would ask different pros to sort of do color, um, and I asked you to do color on on the T Tempest one. I think was did you do it with Brian or was Brian later at that tournament? Yeah, um, I don't remember. At that tournament, it might have been Brian Hacker. Maybe, maybe Ben Hacker. But anyway, so I put you for the very first time. I have you do commentary, and you did it really, really well. You were you were excellent in commentary. You were, I mean, you've always been very entertaining, but um, you did a really good job. Uh, and then I started using you all the time doing commentary. Uh, so what was that? What was like doing commentary like back in the day? Uh, I always really enjoyed commentary. Um, I think that uh, I think I got lucky where early in my career you put me in a couple spots where I was really biased and people enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like it was clear who I wanted to win. And I, <laughs> I, I somehow, uh, I managed to do that in a way that, that endeared me to people rather than made people not like me. Cause obviously you can imagine a situation where being biased in the booth is going to turn people off. Yeah. Um, maybe my, you know, uh, the opponents in some cases may have worked in my favor as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I will say that um, I also, you know, I, I compared to today for sure. I mean, I was just ahead of the curve in understanding magic back then as well. And um, the longer I've been involved in magic and, you know, I've done some sort of commentary lately, like with the super leagues that Randy Bueller ran mm -hmm. And uh, I covered the Magic Online Championship when we did it online yeah. a couple years ago. Um, so I still occasionally do commentary now, and I watch a lot of Magic coverage. Um, and the one thing that I have realized now is being good at Magic and, and being on top of your game, in many ways, is, is still the most important thing to being good at commentary. And, and it's not because... It's not because that's what people necessarily want from commentary, but because when you when you always understand what's happening, it just frees you up to be a better partner, be entertaining. Um, when you don't have to think as hard about the magic, where you can say intelligent things about the game as it's happening, um, and still have enough brain power left to be a good, um, you know, sort of entertainer. Um, or entertainer slash journalist, um, I think that's just worth a lot. And I've just been constantly 
blown away by almost every really good magic player. I've always like, wow, this person's way better at commentary than I would have expected them to be based on their personality. Yeah. Um, and it's because they're just really good at magic and that makes the commentary. And, I, and obviously that, I'm sure I'm biased because that, that kind of like spiky player commentary appeals to my sensibilities. So as, as a, as a consumer of magic content, I'm sure I'm biased towards liking those kind of commentators. But I still think it's really important. Um, and back then I was just, you know, I was one of the good magic players back then. So I think that I, I probably stood out in the goof a little bit more. Okay. I want to jump ahead. Cause before we run out, I, I definitely want to talk about Kuala Lumpur. Okay. So, um, so you had been to a couple invitations. So uh, this is the Magic Invitational at Kuala Lumpur. You had been to a number of Magic Invitationals before that. Um, you were a frequent. Uh, the fans used to vote you in all the time to go. Um, and see if you remember this. Uh, I would used to tell you you were invited, and then by the end of the pro tour, you had to tell me whether you were going or not. And for Kuala Lumpur, I went back to you, and you said, "I'm not going to go. I'm out." Do you remember this? Really? Yes. And I had to talk you into going. Do you remember this? No. Yeah, you're like, I've done it. I don't need to do it anymore. And I'm like, oh, come on, Chris. You, you enjoy it. And I had to talk you into saying yes, which I did, obviously. Kuala, Kuala Lumpur is so far. Anyway, far you, uh, anyway, I got you to say yes, so you did say yes. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Kuala Lumpur. So what happened to Kuala Lumpur? So this is, uh, well, for people that don't know, the invitation you won. So th- this is obviously. Uh, right. Um, so obviously, like, the, the, I mean, it's the invitation I won. I beat John Fick in the finals, which. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Pretty big moment for me. Um, each of us had like a colossal misplay, which is interesting. Um, where, uh, oh, and the, real quick, uh, so the audience doesn't know this. The finals in the Invitational is there were five formats, and you played each of the five formats. And one right. of the formats was uh, <laughs> Solomon. I was uh, right. Solomon draft, which you, Solomon. which you're not very good at. <laughs> Solomon draft, I'm just terrible. I, I, I famously lost to you in it once. So famous to me. It's a famous event to me. Uh, so I'm really bad at Solomon draft. So really, I had to win three out of four. Yeah. Um, Solomon draft is also like many people consider it to be like the real skill testing format, which is why it's so embarrassing that I lost to you, and also why there was just no chance I could beat John. So really, I had to win three of the four other formats is how I viewed it. Yeah. And that, that is how it played out. Um, uh, I'm, so yeah, beating John in the finals of that is obviously amazing. Um, but at the big... Um, thing from that tournament mm-hmm. the other big thing besides you know me winning and meddling mage and yeah is that i showed up at that tournament and i was very unhappy with our decks i was like i i don't like the decks we built i don't think they're good i don't know what i'm going to play so i went to dave humphreys and i said hey are you guys willing to share technology i mean i'll, I'll be honest i don't think our decks are great which is why i'm coming to you but uh um but what do you think? Like, I, you know, do you want to share, like work together? And this is like the day before. And I don't know. I assume he proposed it, but I, cause it doesn't sound like, I don't know who proposed it, but I know that he was like, whatever, it's not a, it's not a pro tour, you know, it's no big deal. But he said to me, I'll show you what I'm playing. But if you win this tournament, you have to fly me to wherever the tournament is next year. Cause there was always a grand prix. I'm very associated with it. There was always a Grand Prix on site um, associated with the Invitational. So he said, okay, fine. You can see my decks, but if you win the tournament, uh, you need to fly me to the Grand Prix where the Invitational is next year. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. So that, 
<laughs> so it actually happened, and I had to fly Dave to Australia. Right, it's in Sydney. <laughs> not a cheap flight. Yeah, Australia. So, the, yeah, the thing I always remember Kuala Lumpur, we were at, at some like amusement park or something. It was some like some half water park, half amusement park thing. Do you remember that? Uh, I remember we went bowling. Yeah. Um, we went to the night market. <laughs> remember the night market? I remember bowling. I don't remember the amusement park thing. Well, I mean, we were staying at the place we were staying at was some like resort. Oh, right. I mean, we didn't right. really go to it, but it was just, so. Yes. It was that this big Kuala Lumpur resort that we had no idea what it was, so. Yeah. Yeah, that was a cool trip. It's so long ago. Yeah. So what, what's it like, remember. since we're almost out of time, I want to hear a little bit about winning the card. What is it like winning an invitational card? Uh, I mean, it's amazing. Having the card is amazing, especially because it really, it's not what I submitted, but it's, it's and first of all, it's better than what I submitted, <laughs> and, and which obviously makes it cooler. Yeah. They, they changed the card, but it's very, very much in the spirit of what I wanted, which is the most important thing. Like, yeah, yeah, we worked with you. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. right. You worked with me to get me something I would be happy with. I, I think that I happened to win the invitation at a time where, where magic design was changing a lot, so it was very difficult for me to, like, design a card that was, uh, you know, going to fit perfectly with, with the direction that, that you guys were taking magic design. Yeah. Um, so it made more sense for me, and in many ways, it made more sense for me to give you the gist of what I wanted, yeah. and for you to come up with the specifics. And it worked out amazing. It was really exactly. Of course, now it's sort of underpowered by modern standards. <laughs> um, I don't know if you saw the thing going around on Twitter about the card I submitted in 2002. Oh, I, I did not, but uh... <laughs> yeah. um, which was a which was a much uh, which which was a much fancier design that ended up sort of like being ahead of the magic design curve. Yeah, right. yeah, I designed a, a two-two goblin uh, that you could tap to reveal. You remove the top card of your library from a game, from the game, and if it was a goblin, a sorcery, or a mountain, you could play it. Okay. Which is basically, like <laughs> a red card now. Um, that yeah, was like yeah. eighteen years ago. Yeah. Uh, but meddling mage, uh, there wasn't really a card like it, so I, I wasn't sure exactly how to design it. I think I actually submitted a spike tail creature. You sacked Which, it to counter the creature. You named a card, and then you could sack it to counter the card that you named, I believe is what it was. Right. Um, anyway, it worked out amazing because it was exactly really 100% in the spirit of what I wanted and a really powerful card. It's been a four of and two decks at one Pro Tour. Or three decks. It's been a four of and three decks at one Pro Tour. Now. Yeah. And uh, obviously no no other invitational card has done that. So pretty yeah. happy. Yeah, and one of the, the the intent when I came up with the prize was to give somebody something that would mean a little more to them than you know just winning some cash at the tournament. That it it sort of puts you as part of magic in a way that was just very different. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, it's incredible. I, I wish you still did it. Well, we started the the world champions were starting to, to work with them on a card, so that we're, we're we're kind of redoing it a little bit with the world champions now. So that's a great idea. Yeah. So, but anyway, Chris, I realize I'm uh, I'm approaching my desk, so I'm almost to work. So, uh, do you have any last thoughts before we uh, we wrap up today? Thoughts last on... thoughts? Oh, yeah. Man, people are always ask people very favorite <laughs> they ask me last thoughts. I'm like, uh, I, no, I did not prepare any closing remarks. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, I hope Magic, uh, you know, post-quarantine, uh, we figure out how to uh, make in-person Magic happen again and feel as 
as exciting as it used to feel. That's, I guess that's my only closing thought. We will. But we, once we get some sort of uh, the proper medicine, to, we'll get there. Magic yeah. will return. So, But anyway, I'm at my desk, so we all know that means. It means it's the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So, Chris, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. And, guys, I will see you next time. Bye-bye.